Well, we've all heard of software as a service, banking as a service, but how about fairness as a service? It can be done, and for those who face the reality of not having their credit scores measure up or being denied loans or mortgages, this is the time for fairness as a service. And to explain how it works and how the numbers that have traditionally been relied upon need to be given a closer look and more pinpoint accuracy, we have Kareem Saleh of Fairplay here on Dave and Darm Demystified. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. So welcome everybody to today's podcast. And today we welcome Kareem Saleh from Fairplay. Kareem? Would you like to just give us a brief introduction and then tell us a bit about Fairplay? Thanks, Dave and Darm. Delighted to be here. My name's Kareem Saleh. I am the founder and CEO of Fairplay, the world's first fairness as a service company. Our tools allow anybody using an algorithm to make a high stakes decision about someone's life to answer five questions. Is my algorithm fair? If not, why not? Could it be fairer? What's the economic impact to our business of being fairer? And finally, did we give our declines, the folks we rejected, a second look to see if they might resemble good applicants on dimensions that our primary decisioning system didn't heavily take into account? In the US, our tools are used primarily by financial institutions who want the economic, regulatory, and reputational dividends of being fair. As you may know, in the U.S., we have a long history of financial exclusion for certain groups, and our software makes it easy for financial institutions to reach more applicants safely from historically disadvantaged communities. I mean, it's a very interesting space. You know, the fact you've kind of gone straight into sort of analyzing AI. I mean, just can you outline some of the problems that people face just in terms of this as a sort of starting point. And then I think it'd be good to come back and say, well, what's AI got to do with this at this moment in time? Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is increasingly high stakes decisions in people's lives, like whether they get a job interview, whether they're approved for a loan, even whether they'll be approved for a kidney transplant. Those decisions all used to be made by humans and increasingly they are being made by algorithms. And those algorithms appear to be replicating, if not worsening, the discrimination of the past. That's not because the people who make those algorithms are people of bad faith. It's largely due to limitations in data and mathematics. And so our conviction is that left to their own devices, these algorithmic systems will exhibit disparities towards people of color, 
towards women, towards other groups who are not well represented in the data. And so in order to prevent that, we have to intentionally program these algorithms to be fairer to those historically disadvantaged groups. And we've actually borrowed a pretty cool technique from Tesla, the electric car company founded by Elon Musk, to do that. And what is that? Yeah. So if you think about it, every algorithm must have an objective, a goal that it seeks relentlessly to maximize. And in financial services, when we talk about things like loan applications, that goal is usually predict who's going to pay back this loan. But if you take a step back and think about giving an algorithm one single objective, you can see how its pursuit of that singular objective might cause it to do all kinds of damage along the way. For example, if you look at the Facebook algorithm, the Facebook algorithm's primary target, its primary objective is to keep users engaged. And so it is going to relentlessly try to keep users engaged regardless of whether the content it's showing them is bad for their health or bad for society. And Elon and Tesla really encountered this problem in self-driving cars. Because if you think about it, if you gave a self-driving car the singular objective of getting you from point A to point B, it might very well do that while driving the wrong way down a one-way road, while blowing through stoplights, while causing mayhem to pedestrians. So what Tesla very cleverly did was give its algorithm two objectives. Get the passenger from point A to point B while also respecting the rules of the road. And that is the exact approach that we are applying in financial services. Predict who will pay back while minimizing disparities between groups. And what we find is that 25 to 33% of the highest scoring black, brown, and female applicants for loans that get denied would have performed as well as the riskiest borrowers that most lenders approve. So by constraining the algorithm to be fairer, by giving the algorithm two objectives, predict payback while also treating fairly, we are able to minimize those disparities for folks who've been historically left out of the financial system. I mean, it always fascinates me Newcos, you know, startups spot gaps in what the banks have not been doing, right? But it always just fascinates me, you know, why the bank hasn't done that. And I'd love to hear, why do you think banks haven't done this already? Yeah, I think it's a complicated set of reasons. I mean, I think the first thing is coming out of the great financial crisis, there was a perception that, you know, so-called non-prime or thin file, no file consumers who are inherently hard to underwrite were somehow the cause of the great financial crisis. And so as a result, at least in the US, but I think in other developed banking jurisdictions as well, banks were really pushed up the credit spectrum. And we see that here in the US where, you know, in 2008, the average credit score of a mortgage holder was 600. And today the average credit score of a mortgage holder is 660, even though the overall amount of lending today exceeds 2008 levels. So we have more mortgage credit available today, but that credit is overwhelmingly distributed up the credit spectrum to kind of prime consumers. So 
I think for several years, basically the financial services institutions and consumer lenders in the U.S. were not paying much attention to the non-prime hard-to-score market. And into that breach stepped a new crop of fintechs who thought that they could deliver financial services to those individuals. Secondly, you know, these techniques are really state-of-the-art AI and machine learning methodologies that have only emerged from academia in the last couple of years. And frankly, the banks have found it very, very hard to compete with the likes of Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, for machine learning talent. And as a result, they've just frankly had a little bit of a skills gap with respect to adopting some of the latest and greatest AI methodologies. Now, if you're a very big, technologically sophisticated bank, perhaps like a Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan or a Capital One, maybe you can compete with Google, Amazon, Facebook for machine learning talent. But if you're a middle market, lower middle market financial institution, it's very, very hard to find data scientists to do this work. It's a really interesting point. We had a chat and you showed me sort of some maps and some infographics that you produce across the US in terms of lending decisions, I think around something like home loans. And what that really brought home to me was the disparity between sort of race and gender in terms of approval rates. And I mean, this is before you then mentioned, well, this is AIs making the decisions. I was then so shocked by, but picking up what Darmish said is, do you think that there has been an assumption that actually if we kind of turn this into something that technology deliver, it's going to be innately fair and people haven't understood that bias can creep into things like AI very easily? I think there's no question that the deployment of the technologies got out ahead of the governance systems to harness the technologies. And now we're playing catch up as every day brings some new news story about an AI gone wrong. There's a thing called the AI incident tracker online. You and your audience can go and look it up. And it simply catalogs all of the different examples of you know AI gone wrong. And there's something like, you know, several new incidents every day. So I think you're right to say that there was perhaps some Pollyannishness at the start, but I think these issues are now increasingly in the zeitgeist. And I think both the millennial and Gen Z consumers on whom most financial services companies will depend for their future growth, and also the regulators have woken up to the reality that left to their own devices, these systems will discriminate. And we have to put guardrails in place to make sure that they don't pose a threat either to consumers or, frankly, to the safety and soundness of the financial system. What I guess is really fascinating is that's then forcing the conversation to be had. So, you know, I imagine if you go back 10, 20 years that people would have known about discrimination in the system, but you know, not really knowing what to do about it. Now you've got the ability to kind of actually reprogram AIs to be a lot more fair. That's right. I think the tools for both identifying and remediating bias were extremely primitive, but they have become considerably more advanced in the last several years. And so, you know, our message to the 
financial institutions we work with is that 21st century underwriting practices demand 21st century levels of compliance. And that, I think, is a message that is increasingly resonating both here, but also in Europe, where frankly, it seems to me as a result of GDPR and this new proposed AI bill in the European Parliament, the conversation around these issues is perhaps even more advanced than in the US. I think if there was a tracker for humans, it would be getting several hundred incidents <laughs> per second. So maybe somebody should do that. But on a more serious note, I mean, can we address the problem not just by AI, but by taking out the data itself? So. Why do we need to know whether it's a man or a woman lying for a loan? Why do we need to know their ethnicity? I like to say that for the last 50 years, we have tried to achieve fairness in lending through blindness. This idea that there are neutral, objective variables, which are assessors of creditworthiness. But 50 years on, at least in the States, the black home ownership rate is exactly what it was at the time of passage of the Fair Housing Act. I think it is time for us to admit that fairness through blindness has not achieved its objectives. Maybe we ought to try fairness through awareness. And let me give you an example of why we find that this works. Almost every credit model that we encounter will have consistency of employment in it as a variable, as a factor that's considered in an underwriting decision. And if you think about it, consistency of employment certainly has a natural nexus to creditworthiness. It is a perfectly fine variable for assessing a man's creditworthiness. But consistency of employment will always, by definition, discriminate against women between the ages of 18 to 45 who take time out of the workforce to raise families. And so all we're doing is, you know, programming the algorithms to understand that they will encounter a population sometimes called women. And that population may sometimes exhibit inconsistent employment and we're not telling you that you can't take that variable into account, but when you encounter someone who exhibits inconsistent employment, before you decline them, right, take a look and see if there are other variables on which they resemble good borrowers who were approved. Do they resemble folks that performed well on other dimensions? For example, you know, have they ever declared bankruptcy? How actively are they seeking credit? Do they have good stability of residences? Are they accumulating more and more professional licenses? These are all variables that we also know to be predictive and also to be exhibited by borrowers who pay back. And so the real question is, you know, not letting one dimension necessarily be outcome determinative, especially if it is representative of a big population that ought to be served like women. Again, it's really interesting that you can use the technology actually that's there to really level up things in many ways. I mean, I think one of the things you said at the start of the podcast was that there's a group of people who you know will be good from a credit point of view, but they have been declined, but you're just able to go and find those people. What was the percentage of those people that you can find? Yeah, 25 to 33% of loan declines are essentially false negatives, which is to say that 25 to 33% of the folks who are declined would have performed at least as well as the riskiest folks 
that a financial institution approved. So before you come along to do your work, those people would be declined out of, you know, that was it, done, dusted. Or they are left to the predations of loan sharks, check cashing stores, and kind of folks in the alternative financial system who offer predatory products and gouge them. I mean, again, you know, I'm assuming that's a massive number of people, potentially. Our Consumer Financial Protection Bureau here in the United States estimates that there's something like 50 to 60 million Americans who are thin file, no file, but who are probably credit ready. Wow. Did you say 50 to 60 million? That's correct. Yeah. That's like the population of the UK. <laughs> All things decline. Jeez. And I mean, going back to your, I guess, the human side of this is you're absolutely right. These people have declined, then, you know, they may then find themselves in a situation where, okay, they might not go to a loan shark, but they find themselves on very high rates of interest for loans. And then they become bad payers. And, you know, then it's sort of like they get stuck into the loop of bad credit, so to speak. So I guess anything that you can do to identify these people and kind of get them into the system is a very good thing. That's exactly right. I mean, we have had this terrible history of steering, especially kind of minority folks into predatory products here in the US. So it's not uncommon for lenders who have disparities in their loan portfolios to say, well, people of color really are inherently riskier. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, when you have no credit score or a low credit score and you go to buy a car, they tell you, well, you don't qualify for the manufacturer's 1.9% or 2.9% financing, but a subprime auto lender over here will give you a loan at 12% or 15%. And then you come back to me later and you tell me, well, they default at higher rates. And so <laughs> what's needed here is a proper control group. What you ought to be doing is giving those, you know, low score, no score individuals a prime product and see how they perform on the prime product before you deem them to be inherently riskier. That would be a more scientifically rigorous study. And what we find is that when you conduct the study in that way, when you put the non-prime or subprime borrower in a prime product, that they pay back. We've just done a study on this with a major lender here in the US. The black applicants are paying back at 99.92% the rate of the white applicants, even though they're often charged somewhere between two to 500 basis points more than similarly situated white applicants. Wow. I mean, that's absolutely mind-blowing, to be honest with you, when you kind of think about it. So in terms of Fair Play, the company, do you have software which goes in and audits what's there? What's the approach that you take with going in and sort of unearthing insights around the AR? Yeah. So our product is broadly divided into two core modules, bias detection and bias remediation. Bias detection is those first two questions I shared with you at the top of the pod, right? Is my algorithm fair? If not, why not? And that is, as you say, a fairness audit. The second module is the bias remediation module, right? Could the algorithm be fairer? What's the economic impact to our business of being fairer? And did we give our declines a second look? And so we tell lenders an annually recurring subscription to the bias detection model so that they can be regularly testing 
their algorithms for bias and producing the reports that their executive teams, their auditors and their regulators need to understand what's going on with those loan portfolios. We also sell lenders the bias remediation module in the form of API calls where we re-underwrite the decline loans and send you back a score saying you thought this person was risky, but here is actually, you know, a calibrated risk score that takes, you know, their protected status into account. And even though you thought that they were, let's say, going to default at a rate of 2%, we think they'll actually default at a rate of 1% or lower. That's really, really interesting. Frankly, the evidence is there in the public domain as to the problems they all have in terms of bias. Why wouldn't they be biting off your hand in terms of we can see how you could do this work and work with our technology. I mean, it doesn't sound like a massively onerous job to do. Why would they not want that? I guess it's a very naive question, but... First of all, I think we are noticing, we are getting an increasingly warm reception from the legacy depositories. But I will also say that, frankly, a lot of these institutions are afraid that if they identify a fairer alternative underwriting practice, that it will subject them to liability for their previously unfair lending practices. And so a lot of folks, frankly, are just afraid to admit that they could have been fairer this whole time because of potential regulatory and reputational damage it might do to them. Secondly, we think our technology is extremely easy to integrate. If you give me an engineer of reasonable competence for a week, we can generally get them to code to our API and be up and running in our system. But I have been surprised by the extent to which it is hard for some of these financial institutions, especially ones whose technology systems have been cobbled together over several years through various mergers of sorts to be able even to do that simple work of coding to an API. Many of them, of course, are still not even in cloud environments. I can totally see that. Yeah. Every time some bank in the U.S. announces that it's moving to the cloud, there's a big article in American Banker about it as if that were some, you know, revolutionary development. Is it too early to share with us any of the results that you've achieved through your technology with these fintechs? What we see very regularly is that most of the lenders that we deal with can increase their approval rates of black applicants specifically anywhere on the order of 10 to 20 percent with no corresponding increase in risk. Wow. And so if you think about that in the context of, you know, mortgage lending, that is 10 to 20 percent more black families and homes. Wow. It's extraordinary because what you're doing is you're opening the door to essentially financial inclusion for a whole part of society which has been excluded. And you know, that can only have positive impacts on society more generally, can't it? I mean, the whole notion of inclusion is a positive one, isn't it? You know, access to credit is the sine qua non of modern life. And so what we like to say is that, you know, fair play is good for profits, it's good for people, and it's good for progress. Amazing. Well, listen, we've run out of time, but I just wanted to thank you. It's such an incredible story such an incredible proposition and Dharm and I wish you the best with this and you know really look forward to kind of seeing how the proposition evolves and hopefully at some point we'll see you on this side of the pond and uh, would welcome you with open arms. Thank you I certainly learned a lot about AI as well in the way that you're you know driving the models it's very interesting. 
Thank you both so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation tremendously. And if you're ever in Southern California, please come by our hacker house in Venice Beach to say hello. Will do. We're there next week. So, um, <laughs> with Seth. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.